American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's important and timely event, Monuments as History, Art, Power. This is the first part of our three-part series, Difficult Histories, Public Spaces, The Challenge of Monuments in New York City and the Nation. And that series is sponsored by the American Social History Project and Center for Media and Learning, the Gotham Center for New York City History, and the CUNY Public History Collective, and supported with funds from Humanities New York and the National Endowment for the Humanities. I'm Aaron Amer. I'm a doctoral candidate in the history program here at the Graduate Center, and together with Madeline Dede Pankin, I'm co-chair of the CUNY Public History Collective. Tonight's panel, which we wanted to warn everyone will live up to its name in that we are going to deal with some difficult and disturbing subject matter, especially pertaining to the treatment and mistreatment of enslaved female bodies, was conceived as an introduction to the ongoing evaluation of public monuments and memorials that we've been seeing going on around the country and in New York City. We wanted to place the New York City Commission to review controversial monuments within a broad context of changing approaches to and styles of public art and using as a case study the monument to J. Marion Sims, which until April 16th stood at Fifth Avenue and 104th Street. How can and should we understand Sims' experimentation on enslaved women and the impact his memorialization has had on the East Harlem community? How have scholars, activists, and artists confronted the man on the pedestal? The statue's recent removal, the result of various contributions from all of our panelists, gives us fresh opportunity to consider not only a rightfully reviled man, but also to understand the oppressive systems he was and is a part of, and to imagine ways to remember our difficult history in physical space as it continues to structure our collective. Tonight we'll be hearing from four panelists from a range of disciplines and fields of practice who bring together academic, public, historical, artistic, and activist missions to investigate and harness the power history can have to shape our communities and public space. And following their presentation, there'll be time reserved for questions and conversation. So we do encourage you to please note and hold on to your questions for the Q&A portion, as well as filling out and passing up the survey that's been passed around, which contains some questions about monuments and memorials that exist in New York City today and how we might see different possibilities. We would like to be able to share those responses and have them also inform tonight's conversation. So without further ado, I'm honored to introduce and leave you in the capable hands of our distinguished speakers. Professor Harriet F. Senny is director of the MA program in art history with tracks in art museum studies and art museum education at the City College CUNY. She also teaches at the CUNY Graduate Center. She is author of Memorials to Shattered Myths, Vietnam to 9-11, Dangerous Precedent, The Tilted Art Controversy, and Contemporary Public Sculpture, Tradition Transformation and Controversy. She is co-editor and contributor to Critical Issues in Public Art, Content, Context, and Controversy, and co-editor and contributor to the Companion to Public Art, as well as Museums and Public Art. In 2008, she co-founded Public Art Dialogue, an international organization and a college art association affiliate. She co-edited the peer review journal Public Art Dialogue since its first issue in March 2011 through the spring 2017 issue. She is currently working on a book entitled Memorials in a Post-Heroic Age, as well as an anthology called Teachable Monuments. Recently, she was a member of the Mayoral Advisory Commission on City Art, 
monuments and markers, and the selection panel for a memorial to Elizabeth Caddy Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Deirdre Cooper Owens is an associate professor of history at Queens College CUNY in Queens, New York, and an organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer. She has won a number of prestigious honors that range from the University of Virginia's Carter G. Woodson Postdoctoral Fellowship in the Woodson Institute for African American and African Studies to serving as an American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology Fellow in Washington, D.C. Cooper Owens earned her PhD from UCLA in history and wrote an award-winning dissertation while she was there. She has published essays, book chapters, and popular blog pieces on a number of issues that concern African-American experiences. She is a popular public speaker and is currently working on issues related to reproductive justice, the sites of memory, and anti-racism. Cooper Owens finished working with Teaching Tolerance and the Southern Poverty Law Center on a podcast series about how to teach U.S. slavery. Her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the Organization of American Historians as the best book written in African-American women's and gender history. Professor Cooper Owens is also the new director of the program in African American history at the Library Company of Philadelphia, the United States' oldest cultural institution, which was founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. She's working on a second book project that examines mental illness during the era of American slavery and is writing a popular biography of Harriet Tubman. Marina Ortiz is founder and president of East Harlem Preservation, which seeks to combat gentrification while promoting the neighborhood's history and diversity. She was instrumental in the creation and restoration of many community murals. Ms. Ortiz is also co-chair of the East Harlem El Barrio Community Land Trust, MHA, which seeks to create and sustain community-controlled, permanently affordable low-income housing. Francesca Alcantara is a multidisciplinary artist hailing from the Bronx who looks at domestic life and signifiers of Caribbean culture to explore slippages of identity, fragmentation, and longing. Alcantara has exhibited and performed work at venues such as the Bronx Museum of the Arts, the Queens Museum, La Mama Theater, Grace Exhibition Space, Panoply Performance Lab, and the Bronx Academy of Arts and Dance, BAD. She is a graduate of Hunter College and Old Dominion University. Alcantara is currently pursuing an MFA in Sculpture and Extended Media at Virginia Commonwealth University. We'll hear first from Professor Senny. I was going to begin with the observation that until recently, memorials were fairly invisible. And I imagine you've all had the experience of suddenly becoming aware of some in your neighborhood that you never noticed before. I have. And the other remark I want to make is we can do whatever we want with these statues and we'll have a lot of, I imagine, different perspectives on it. But in the end, it's the issues we need to address and not necessarily the works of art that refer to them. So I'd like to do two things quickly is I'd like to start with a quick summary of the charge and the recommendations of the Mayoral Advisory Commission, uh, just to sort of review what it was that we were supposed to do and the conclusions that we came to um, and what's happening now. So just to quote, the, con the commission will advise, and that's an important word, the mayor on issues surrounding public art and historic monuments and markers on city-owned property 
By the end of the year, this was obviously the end of 2017, the Commission will propose non-binding guidelines to advise on how the city should address monuments seen as inconsistent with the values of New York City. And I'll come back to those values in a second, because we were all like, well, what are the values of New York City? Um, so just to clarify the chain of command, it was the Commission's charge to make recommendations. Then that went to the mayor and also the agency under whose purview a specific memorial fell. So that could have been parks or transportation or what have you. Then it also had to pass the local community board and finally the public design commission which has to approve all works of art on city spaces that are up for more than six months. So it it didn't just happen based on what we said they should do, although I suspect it might. Um, okay, so what were our values? Um, we tried to define these as best as we could. One was inclusion, the capacity for all New Yorkers to feel welcome in New York City's public spaces and have a voice in the public processes by which monuments and markers are included in such public spaces. The second one was historical understanding, respect for and commitment to an in-depth and nuanced histories, acknowledging multiple perspectives, histories that have not been privileged, and new knowledge gained over time. And one of the things that I became aware of is how little of the history of any of these memorials seemed to be common knowledge. I'll just make it personal to me, and I write about this subject. So I was assuming maybe many people don't really know some of the histories and some of those nuances. Also complexity was another value. The recognition of layered and evolving narratives represented in New York City's public spaces with preference for additive approaches over subtractive ones. And I think that was something that did guide our thinking. And the last one was reckoning with power to represent history and public. Reckoning with inequity in our collective past, the present, and looking into the future. And one of uh, the things we thought about was, well, what kinds of strategies might be employed to realize these values? And um, this additive approach in particular, we thought about possibly art interventions, possibly new monuments, possibly alternative commemorations, the presentation of counter-narratives, some kind of supplemental education, and public dialogue. We felt all of those things could be valuable depending on specific instances. So um, we developed these overarching guidelines. I think they may still be online, I'm not sure. And we applied them to a few test cases. So one of the things we thought about were the plaques in the Canyon of Heroes, um, where there was one to Marshall Patan that came under great uh, scrutiny. Uh, one of the things that I suggested was that we change the name of the Canyon of Heroes to something else. But the this is um, on Lower Broadway. Does everybody know where this is? It's right every time there's a parade of some kind of celebration, there's a little mark in the pavement with the date. And what we felt here was that the offenses that Marshal Patin committed during World War II, which were heinous, 
this went up before, and this pertained to his accomplishments, I'm using that word in quotes, earlier. So one, we felt that that criticism didn't apply to this. The other thing we felt was that this is a single work of art. And if you take one thing out, you're going to probably have to take it all out. This is the one we're going to be discussing in great detail uh, tonight. We made a controversial decision to leave the base and remove the statue. And I had an interesting conversation um, just the other night with Jaron Walker, where we had voted separate, differently on this, and we had both changed our minds. So <laughs> I can't tell you which way we voted, but that was pretty interesting. This is, of course, the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial in front of the Museum of Natural History, and I'll have a little more to say about that later on in terms of very complicated history that really was not totally aired at the time that the controversy broke. And of course, Christopher Columbus, which is an ongoing dialogue, but begin to think of what might happen if we removed one, the District of Columbia, Columbia University, Columbus Avenue, it got to be a total nightmare. Um, okay, so, no, seriously. What I'd like to do now after that really quick summary, and I'm happy to answer more questions about it later, is talk a little bit more about how memorials convey meaning and how that meaning may change over time. So of course, this is a very familiar image, right? Lincoln Memorial um, on the National Mall, built 1912 to 21. The architect was Henry Bacon. And it's interesting to note that both the memorial and the NAACP originated in impulses to honor Lincoln on the 100th anniversary of his birth. But these were built to commemorate Lincoln, this particular memorial was built to commemorate Lincoln as the man who saved the Union. And that's really not how we typically think about this memorial today. 1911, Congress created a commission to memorialize Lincoln, and it was chaired by President Taft. It was a national undertaking. The sculpture on the right is by Daniel Chester French. And the inscription over Lincoln, which you can barely see in that image because it's so dark, reads, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. It says nothing about slavery. That would have been considered inflammatory. And one of the most important things to ask about any memorial, I believe, is to ask what's missing, what is being left out. At the dedication, there was a colored seating in the back. The black press denounced the biased speeches and the segregated seating as a mockery of Lincoln's ideals, which they were, and the mainstream press ignored the problem completely. There's a very interesting article by a historian, Scott Sandage, that talks about how the meaning of the way we conceive this memorial changed over time. So how did it change over time? The memorial was transformed through use. In 1939, let's see, here we see all three. 1939, there was a concert by Marian Anderson on Easter Sunday. 1963, there was a march on Washington for jobs and freedom by Martin Luther King. And in 2009, Obama had an inaugural celebration there. So the Anderson concert, Howard University was looking for a larger off-campus site for this. The Daughters of the American Revolution, DAR, had barred Anderson from their tax-exempt Constitution Hall. 
As a result, Eleanor Roosevelt resigned. Anderson began by singing America. The script for the radio commentators at this point in time, remember we're in 1939 here, referred to the structure as the memorial to the great emancipator, even though the capital at that time was still segregated. Anderson had to sleep in a private house because she couldn't get a hotel room. But this event was very, very important for establishing a format for a protest ritual. Mass rallies rather than pickets, performing patriotic and spiritual music, choosing a somewhat religious format, inviting prominent platform guests, self-policing of crowds to project an orderly image, alluding to Lincoln in publicity and oratory, in other words, owning Lincoln, and using the memorial as the site of choice. Okay, so these things continue pretty much today. Then, of course, the march in Washington, Martin Luther King, Lincoln Memorial was the planned site from the first. Martin Luther King began his speech, as we all know, with direct references to Lincoln five score years ago. A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Obama's inaugural celebration, I can hardly bring myself to speak about, so I'm just going to uh, move on. But, seriously, but. And here's the point. If memorials are not used in some way, their meaning can also fade from memory. The Lincoln Memorial is a perfect example how use changes public perception of what a memorial is meant to commemorate. So this is the Slocum Memorial Fountain by Bruno Louis Sim, dedicated in 1906 in Tompkins Square Park. Slocum was a triple-decker wooden ship built in 1891, was named after General Henry Warner Slocum, who was a Civil War general. Um, he represented the city of Brooklyn in Congress for three terms. I'm going on about this a little bit um, because it actually was super important during its time, as you'll see. Um, the steamer itself was one of nearly a dozen excursion boats traveling around New York waterways. It was typically used by working class people to escape the city for a few hours. So June 15, 1904, it catches fire in the East River. It kills 1,300 passengers and 35 crew members. It's the city's deadliest disaster prior to September 11th. Who knew? It remains the worst inland waters peacetime tragedy in the country's history. It devastated an irreplaceable part of the Lower East Side known as Little Germany. It occurred on a weekday, so the majority of the German immigrants and people of German descent were women and children. But here's the part that really surprised me. I mean, I had walked past it and I barely knew what it was. It had international resonance in other media besides newspapers. It was a major reference in James Joyce Ulysses, which takes place entirely on June 16, 1904. In one scene of Ulysses, a character who has read the morning paper muses about the previous day's catastrophe. Terrible affair, that General Sokum explosion. Terrible, terrible, a thousand casualties. And heartrending scenes, men trampling down women and children, most brutal thing. So it had an international effect, if you will, or at least um, impact. Composer Charles Ives wrote an orchestral piece about it, probably one of the few classical works ever devoted to a single brief historic event. 
Perhaps a comparable local tragedy is better known. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that took place on March 25th in 1911 off Washington Square. Some 145 workers killed, one of the deadliest disasters in U.S. industrial history. Deaths that were largely preventable. Victims died because of neglected safety features, right? The sprinklers, the locked doors, and it led to legislation pertaining to workers' conditions. So moving on to one of the issues that we had discussed um, with the commission, the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial, the controversy centered on the depiction of the victims, uh, perceived victims, flanking Roosevelt. And I have to confess, I passed this st uh, statue any number of times. I hadn't really looked at it that closely. But there are a couple of comments about it that I began to do serious research about it because it is by an important artist, and I'll get into that in a moment. And I really wanted to understand the nature of the commission. It's part of a larger memorial complex dedicated to Roosevelt that includes not only the facade of the museum and its sculpture, but also the surrounding wall and its inscription and reliefs as well as murals outside and more inside the building. And this was also interesting to me. I discovered initially it was intended to lead to an underground tunnel, also lined with murals, that would link the American Museum of Natural History to the Met. Wouldn't that have been fun? I know, right? Guess why they didn't build it? I'm sure you can. They ran out of money. Um, so. I want to read to you the artist's interpretation, and there'll be more about him in a moment. He said, Theodore Roosevelt, in this equestrian statue, rides forth with his always dynamic personality. The two figures at his sides are guides, symbolizing the continents of Africa and America, and if you choose, may stand for Roosevelt's friendliness to all races. Uh, I think when we think about the complicated history and the different artistic conventions at play, it's not as simple as it sounds. The sculptor James Earl Fraser, who lived from 1876 to 1953, had lived in South Dakota, in Minnesota. He had a very friendly relationship with Native Americans. He was also well-trained and immersed in the contemporary art of his time. He visited the World's Columbian Exposition. He studied in Paris at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. But most importantly, I think, in terms of the history, art history we might know, is Augustus St. Gaudens took him on as an assistant in Paris and later in New York. And he made major contributions to several of St. Gaudens' statues. He was the principal assistant on the Sherman Monument, which I know we're all familiar with. Did other important works. Um, bust for the New York City Hall of Fame. He designed the Buffalo Nickel. Um, he had many, many honors. And he was elected, among other things, to the American Academy of Arts and Letters. It's considered that between the World Wars, he was Washington's most prolific sculptor. So it raises an issue also of what happens when a controversial monument is made by an quote-unquote, important artist, and the work itself has considerable aesthetic merit. That's one question. The other question has to do with how do we interpret this? The figures 
from my perspective, I've discussed this at length with a curator of American sculpture from the Smithsonian, are allegorical. As the artist said, they represent continents. Each carries a rifle. The Native Americans pointed down, the Africans pointed up. Um, according to this curator who has not to be named, uh, this might indicate the end of the American continent as a site of exploration in contrast to the opportunities of Africa. It was, um, well, no matter what else, it was extremely unusual, if not the first time, a black figure was portrayed carrying a gun, given the racial climate in the United States at the time. In any event, if you look at the figures closely, they are not abject and they indicate a high level, a high standing within the continents that they represent. Certainly I'm familiar with the protest decolonize this place and certainly it's true that Roosevelt was an imperialist, but he's also known for non-racist actions. He was the first president to entertain an African-American in the White House and the first to appoint an African-American as to an executive job. He protested crimes against blacks in St. Louis. I have some really outrageously funny um, quotes from some of the papers there. Um, he saved and protected Native American runes by classifying them as national monuments. Um, unquestionably, he was a product of his time. He became president after McKinley was shot in 1908. But the issue remains is how do we understand him in the multifaceted complexity of his time? He's a hunter and he's a conservationist. Um, he dedicated large-scale irrigation projects in the American West. He set aside almost 200 million acres for national forest reserves and wildlife refuge, almost five times as much land as all his predecessors combined. I'm saying it's not that easy to classify. He's the first president to win the Nobel Peace Prize for his negotiations to end the Russo-Japanese War. He also believed in eugenics, as did the museum in front of which he stands. How do we pry that apart and convey it in a way that gives a broader perspective? I don't know. <laughs> That's the artist's job. Um, but it's certainly something, I re, what I really in all seriousness want to emphasize is history, this history is very complicated, as is most history. I want to look at a couple of examples how artists have addressed problematic memorials or not so problematic memorials by, if you will, recontextualizing them. This is a work, a projection by Christoph Wodischko of 1998. It's a public projection at Bunker Hill Monument in Boston, outside of Boston, uh, ran for three nights. It was part of a public art initiative sponsored by the Institute of Contemporary Art there. And what this features, if you can make it out towards the top, it's interviews with Charleston, that's the local area where this is, mothers speaking of personal experiences, mostly about their murdered children. Charleston had a very high murder rate and residents were afraid to go to the police. So it transforms the previously gendered nature of the monument um, and uses it to mark private family pain as opposed to masculine wartime sacrifice. Here's one closer to home. Um, Abraham Lincoln, the war veteran projection 2012 in Union Square Park, um, where he interviewed a number of soldiers 
dozens of American vets and family members, and they spoke about the traumatic consequences of their war experiences. And the interviews, as you can see here, were clearly projected onto the statue. I want to, maybe the last image I'll show. Um, I know, I love this. And it's on a lighter note, which I think we could use. This was Tatsu Nishi's Discovering Columbus of 2012, um, where he encloses, and this was actual, how many people actually got to see it? Wasn't it amazing? Um, the 75-foot statue in a fully furnished modern um, living room. You walked up these, had a 55-inch flat screen TV. The furniture came from Bloomingdale's. You walked up six flights to this fictional setting. Um, and it, uh, the intimate experience makes you realize how distant memorials typically are from where we can even see them. And it raises the issue of extreme privatization that's increasingly encroaching on public spaces. I think I have to stop there. Good afternoon. I thought the rain would scare everybody away, um, but it has not. So it is uh, good to see you all. And this presentation, um, which I was told is 15 minutes and is very hard for historians to not talk a lot. So <laughs> I'm going to do my best um, to stay within the time frame. But what I'm going to do is also link it to the genealogy of my book in this project, because people often ask me, how in the world did you come to write this book? And I was like, well, that started as a dissertation project um, well over 10 years ago. Who knew that the whole statue controversy would kind of erupt and people would take seriously around the time of the publication of my book? And so I think unlike a lot of the uh, women on the dais, I've been brought into this conversation in ways that I had not imagined. And so um, what I like to do is kind of stay in my land as a historian of slavery and medicine and contextualize and provide the most accurate and precise information that I have around Sims, uh, American gynecology, and most importantly for me, the enslaved women that he worked on. So of Monuments and Men Confronting the Historical Legacy of James Marion Sims, um, although I write largely about American gynecology, because of the political climate that has erupted over the past year, um, year and a half, especially with the uh, taking down of Confederate statues throughout the South, James Marion Sims's name has come to be more prominent in uh, mainstream America. So who was James Marion Sims? I'm sure many of you know. He was touted uh, after his death as the father of American gynecology. You know, in this country, we like to assign that title to lots of men, right? Um, the founding fathers, there's founders, you know, fathers of psychiatry, the father of the ovariotomy. I mean, it goes on and on, right? So he's the father of American gynecology after, after he passed. Born in South Carolina, in upstate South Carolina, in Lancaster in the 19th century, 
And he was like very many uh, Southern white men. He was not very poor, not very rich, kind of came from middling uh, means, decided against his father's wishes that he wanted to pursue a degree in medicine. So he first went to medical school in South Carolina. And he was not pleased with his education. And so he goes up north, uh, as many men of the young white men of the South had done, and enrolls in uh, Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. And after he graduates from Jefferson, he returns home, sets up shop, and the enterprise doesn't last that long. Two infants, two Negro infants, uh, die under his care. Now, this is one of the issues that people ask me, right? Because with Sims, it's either or, right? Either he was a hero or either he was a villain. And so for me, in trying to provide context, I don't necessarily operate from an either or paradigm, right? Both and, and I, I think the, you know, the previous panelists kind of stressed that people can encompass a lot of different identities. And so the both and becomes very important here. And so some folk will say, well, I read a book that he murdered these two infant, uh, Negro infants, right? And so I say surgeries were rare in the antebellum era, and lots of people died. That's just the nature of 19th century antebellum surgery. And so they were so rare that, in fact, country doctors like Sims and his colleagues would invite folk in, I mean, much like you are in this room, to, in fact, watch surgeries as a form of public education, but also entertainment, right? Because those things didn't happen very often. Now, right, when I say that, that doesn't divorce Sims as a white man born in antebellum South Carolina, right, from the prevailing anti-black views that most white people held during that time, especially those who worked on and owned slaves. So after these infants die, Sims moves west to Alabama to Mount Meigs, and he has to begin his medical practice again, right? And he writes very transparently in his autobiography, Story of My Life, how he has to work on kind of the rabble of the community, Jews, poor whites, um, he says free niggers, um, and so he finally kind of moves up the ladder where he's able to work on uh, respectable white people, and also he provides services for local slave owners, right? Now this is where Sims's introduction into this burgeoning field called gynecology starts to happen around uh, 1844 or so. A white woman, Mrs. Merrill, was riding a horse, falls off the horse, and she's in extreme pain. Sims examines her and finds that her uterus has reversed. And so remember, this is a time where gynecology is not even a formal field. Right? And in addition, you can go to medical school without actually giving a physical examination to women. And so he asks Mrs. Merrill, can he examine her vaginally? He remembers uh, from one of his professors, in fact, at, uh, at medical school in South Carolina, that if you apply enough air pressure into the vaginal opening, the uterus might come right side up, and that's what happens, 
right? And there's even a story where she lets out a noise. It sounds like flatulence, right? And he writes about all of this in his, in his uh, autobiography. So fast forward, there is an enslaved woman in his um, hospital whose owner had sent her to Sims because she suffered from vesicovaginal fistula, right? Today we would call that an obstetrical fistula. But what happened is women would have protracted pregnancies lasting for days, right? Two, three, sometimes four days. So with the upper vaginal region, um, with this traumatic injury that happens, the body is trying to expel the fetus or the baby. What happens is it's stuck. So as you're trying to expel the, the fetus or the baby, friction happens. Official or whole forms, it could be microscopic to gaping, and the vesicle or bladder is exposed. Right? So it's not a deadly condition, but most certainly, right, there is incontinence, if there is anal ripping, incontinence in that area, and as you can imagine, any enslaved woman who is of childbearing age, she is going to decrease in her uh, economic value. She will be ostracized because of the stench that emanates from her body. Infections can happen. There's all kinds of psychological stress. And so her master sends her to Sims. Sims has this idea after his vaginal examination of Mrs. Uh, Merrill, perhaps he can cure uh, vesicle vaginal fistula. Because as he says, when he opens up, and so the enslaved women are the only names that we know, Anarcha Betsy Lucy. And he later talks about kind of canvassing the community to get more cases. And so there are about a half a dozen or so, uh, six to nine, we're still not sure the, the exact number. So he canvasses the community, right, the county to get more cases. And what he starts to do, right, he starts to perfect in his words, this procedure. So he takes pewter spoons to open up the vaginal area. Anybody who's ever experienced a, experienced a pap smear, we know the duckbill speculum. That's where it initially comes from. The examination of these enslaved women's bodies with these pewter spoons. And then he starts to try silk sutures and then later silver sutures to repair the fistula or the hole. This takes a number of years. And so in the four to five years that these women are experimented on and operated on, what happens is, after about two and a half years or so, the white community withdraws support. His two surgical assistants, we know the name of one, Nathan Bozeman, they leave his practice, he is losing money, and he has also leased out these slaves, right? And people are like, what does that mean? And I said, two of the most famous enslaved people, Harriet Tubman, first leased at six years old. Frederick Douglass talks about being leased. Very common practice. And so this notion that Sims was you know, benevolent and took on the financial responsibility because he had a caring heart to care for these people. No, he was a man who was doing just as other slave owners did. He leased slaves because he needed to repair them for their owners. And what could happen as a medical doctor, but also a 19th century medical entrepreneur, is that he could possibly become well-known in the field and more respected. And thus we know about the Sims speculum, the Sims position, um, right? All of these things that Sims names after himself. And so once the white community withdraws support, 
what does Sims do? Here he is performing an experiment and his, his colleagues essentially have left him. He trains these enslaved women who are his patients to also serve as his surgical assistants or nurses. Now this is where the part becomes really interesting, right? And when we talk about context and we talk about memorials and all of these things, for me I always say, who was at the table when the history was being written? Because from my perspective, being interested in the lives of enslaved people, and in particular black women, I'm thinking about the prevailing racial beliefs of the time. Black people were supposed to be intellectually inferior, mentally degenerate, and yet Sims teaches enslaved women who are a, considered a subset of men, a subset of white people. He teaches them the very same skills that he taught his white surgical assistants who were white men. And so for me, I'm often asking the students, there are literally ways that we can look at these racial fictions from a 21st, uh, 21st century perspective by viewing these 19th century sources. How do you teach an intellectual, inferior, mentally degenerate person the same skills that you teach a smart, capable white man? But he does, because guess what enslaved people do? They labor. That's what they do, they work. That is what they are meant to do for white people during that time. So he teaches them this after five years Sims reports that his uh, patients have been cured. He sends them back to their owners. It takes him some time to publish an article because he experiences some, some illnesses, but in 1852, he publishes on vesicle vaginal fistula, and it really explodes upon the medical scene. Uh, he had already been a prolific writer, um, but there are some interesting things that happen with the article that I'm gonna get into next. So I just wanted to give you some context around Sims. And I'm also forgetting this. Another part of the critique is Sims butchered these black women's reproductive parts, and he also did not give them anesthesia. Sims didn't give patients anesthesia. During the 1840s, anesthesia was not that common. This is the other thing too. Sims was taught in a medical tradition where the best way you know a patient was alive was that they were conscious, that they could scream out, that they could resist. Now, does this mean that Sims did not hold the prevailing views about black people's inability to bear pain? Of course he did. All of his professors believed this. There were all kinds of experiments. I mean, if you just go through 19th century, 18th century medical records, medical journals, and texts, you will read all kinds of scientific, supposedly value-neutral statements about black people's biological differences from white people's. So of course he does that. But this is the other thing that's really important. The one thing a slave owner does not want to do is destroy the reproductive capabilities of black women. How does slavery continue to propagate? It is through the wounds and the bodies of black women, which is why in colonial British America, and you can find it in other colonial contexts, but in British colonial America, what becomes very important is that slave owners are not interested in who the father of enslaved children are. Slave owners impregnated enslaved women. 
I mean, my goodness, talk about monuments. Let's just look at Thomas Jefferson, right? A real founding father, right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, it didn't matter. You could be native, you could be white, you could be African. What happens is the reversal of English law that now says for a black woman who was enslaved, the condition of the child is contingent upon the mother's servitude or not. So it is at, in fact, the economic interest of Sims who enters into these legal agreements with these local slave owners to try to repair the reproductive capabilities of these enslaved women because literally the institution rests in their, in their wombs. The propagation of slavery rests in these black women's bodies. So I'm gonna stop here and then I'm gonna go into like how did my work, right, where I'm really interested in the, the, the kind of embryonic stages of American gynecology all the way until it's, its full culmination in the antebellum era comes about, how does my work then start to focus a bit more on Sims? So in August of 2017, I wake up to a number of tweets and inboxes and Facebook, you know, messages and, did you see what happened? Do you know what happened? I'm like, no, what, what happened, right? And members of the um, Black Youth Project 100 staged a protest. So they staged it at the um, now infamous Sims statue in Central Park. F white supremacy address when um, August 19th. And so what uh, a part of the protest is also about is remembering the mothers of American gynecology. Oftentimes, what a lot of historians have done, and there has been now some, some discourse around uh, what agency actually means, but a lot of folk will say, you know, you're just you know, extending agency to these women who really didn't deserve it. My book was originally gonna be called The Mothers of Gynecology. My press did not you know, think that was appropriate as I was extending agency to these enslaved women. And I was like, so did you not read the part where Sims actually taught these women to assist him? Like, did that, you know, I didn't make this up. I'm not a creative, you know, writer, right? So these really were, if there is a father, these women who helped him towards the very end of the experimental work are the mothers of American gynecology because that's what enslaved women did, they worked. So it is a sacrifice of the body, and I don't use that word sacrifice as if they came willingly. They did not. This was a merger between Sims and their slave owners. But as they're there, even against their wills, they are sacrificing literally their bodies to be operated on year after year after year, and on top of that, taking care of each other in the process. So the mothers of American gynecology also are named in this protest by the BYP 100. Um, and this was the image um, that kind of came, that you know, went viral and kind of came up again over on the different social media platforms that I use. Jewel Cadet is the woman in the um, head wrap. And Jewel, who I later met uh, almost a year later, or a few months, few months later, um, you know, told me that she was the organizer of the protest. And so, you know, we kind of talked about the artistic protests that she and members of the BYP 100 took and acted on that day. The interesting thing is my book was supposed to be published November uh, 15th, 2017, but because of this, my press rushed it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's good for me, I got tenure. <laughs> At least I could stick the book in a tenure file. But it was really interesting, right? So for them, it was, let's ride this wave, when I kept trying to say, this is nothing new, right? So Marina Ortiz, even though I'm meeting her for the first time tonight, I literally had read about her work when I was writing a dissertation. I mean, way back, I graduated in 2008, and I remember reading about the work that she had done, you know, in, in conjunction with other community members. And so, it was really interesting for me to start asking questions. Why had people, right, in the kind of general public, why were journalists taking this much more seriously as to when these protests first started well over a decade ago? The political climate had changed. Here you had folk, in a, particularly now in a kind of Black Lives Matter world, where younger folk were going up, especially in the South, and demanding the removal of Confederate statues. And all of a sudden, here in New York, the kind of enclave of the Union, you had someone connected to slavery. And people became really interested in that. Now, that's my hypothesis. I could be dead wrong. But all of a sudden, I'm, I'm being brought into this. I'm sure many other folk are being brought into the fray to answer these questions, right? And I always throw it back to the journalists. Like, why are you now taking it seriously? The protests haven't changed. The message hasn't changed from, from the activists in particular. So what was it that sparked your interest to give this movement legitimacy? So once again, the institutional protest by women of color in East Harlem, New York, has happened for well over a decade. Marina Ortiz is with us. <laughs> Diane Collier. It's so interesting that, you know, now I'm showing a picture and she's sitting right beside me. <laughs> so a part of the gender discontent, right? Black and Latinx, or Latina Latinx women are leading the call for city officials to remove Sims statue. It seems white men who have been vocal and hyper-visible in maintaining the presence of Confederate statues um, had been conspicuously silent about Sims. So you would notice, right, with the protests in the South, right, it tended to be, you know, largely black folk, a lot of young folk, university, college students, uh, and the kind of counter-protest to uh, keep the, the kind of heritage of these Confederate statues um, tended to be younger white men. And the protests, at least in New York, tended to be largely black and brown women. The politics of black people's rage and white people's indifference is new in the New York City case. I didn't really see, at least from my vantage point as an observer, I didn't really see a lot of counter-protest as it was in places like Charlottesville or Durham. This was an article that Many of us on this panel had been uh, interviewed for Lauren Saucer of uh, South Carolina's Post and Courier, South Carolina's uh, kind of leading newspaper, right? The savior women or medical monster, the front legacy of South Carolina's most infamous physician. And I'm always like, it's a, it's a little bit more complicated. Now, there are some ethical issues that we can bring out from the 19th century. If you read my book, I'm going to give one away. The fact that there was a mulatto baby born during the experimental trial. That brings up some ethical issues. See, that's why y'all need to read Medical Bondage. <laughs> Paper book is coming out soon, right? <laughs> thank you, thank you, right? So my thing is, there are other biomedical issues. Now, I can't state from a census record who the child's father was. But what I can do as a historian is raise questions. 
provide context and to start piecing dates together. Why did the white community leave around the same time that this woman had a baby? I don't know, right? I don't know, but I can raise the questions. Was Sims exceptional? That's the other thing. He was a brutal monster. Wait, let me, let me provide the history. Many of you have heard of Sarti Bartman, derisively known as the hot and tot Venus, right? Georges Cuvier was a natural historian and scientist, literally creates the template for how black women were used scientifically and medically. You go down to Ephraim McDowell, father of the ovariotomy. I told you I'm not making this up, right? He first performs this pioneering, I mean, it's the first successful abdominal-based surgery that we know of in Western medicine. Performs it in Kentucky on a white woman. And then, and then he does a number of experiments over years, kind of the same thing that Sims does, right? On enslaved and free women of color. And some of them die as well. John Peter Matara had written an article on vesicovaginal fistula, where he performed two vesicovaginal fistula reparative surgeries on an enslaved woman and a white woman. In the article, he speaks really, writes in fact, very candidly where he says, you know, he was angry because the white woman was repaired. The enslaved woman wasn't. And he says, if she had just stopped engaging in sexual intercourse, it would have made the repair of her fistula easier. Well, sir, she was a slave. I mean, she couldn't just say, nah, not tonight. <laughs> he knows this. He owned them, right? He owned slaves, right? But once again, you have literally a kind of pioneering list of men who are doing the same thing. Francois-Marie Prevost, he was born in France, tries to perfect the C-section, the cesarean section in Haiti, there's a thing called the Haitian Revolution. He skips out after that. He goes to Louisiana. Guess what he continues to do on enslaved women? He continues to experiment on enslaved women to perfect the C-section, and he becomes known as the father of the cesarean section. So in this way, what I'm trying to show is that there was not really an exceptionality with the practice of how Sims did his, his medicine, uh, his medical practice and his surgical practice, that he's following a longer line that had been set up by men who had come before him. And so for me, what I'm trying to do as a historian is to make the history more whole, three-dimensional, and include all of the historical actors. That this didn't just happen in a vacuum, but that the history of gynecology and the history of American slavery are intimately tied. And so when we talk about the rise of this field, we also have to talk about the ways that the institution of slavery allowed vulnerable populations to help advance the field in very particular ways. So Sims publishes on vesicle vaginal fistula in 1852. And literally, as I often tell students, sometimes we are so normal, normalized to accept certain images, you don't even blink twice. I said, but wait, he is very clear that he is working on, you know, Negro servants. Look at the picture. 
Now, mind you, I'm married to always, my joke is the whitest looking black man you can imagine. He's like the opposite of Obama or Bob Marley, right? He sounds like Barry White and my God, looks like Walter White. If any of you know your NAACP history. So, so I understand there are some really light-skinned black people, but she is not one of them, right? So all of a sudden, here you have the erasure of blackness in the medical text. So you're reading the words, but the image is that of a white woman who is clothed, even has her shoes on. Sims is simply holding the instrument. The white nurse is holding the actual buttocks apart. So there's this sense of modesty that happens. With the enslaved women, they were operated on naked with a viewing audience because the belief was that black women didn't have modesty. Lest you think it's only Sims. Nathan Bozeman. Sims sold his house to Nathan Bozeman and Nathan Bozeman uh, continued a medical practice working on enslaved people right there in Alabama. He writes an article. He becomes, in fact, one of Sims's loudest critics. But he talks about this enslaved woman, Matilda Stamper. Once again, Matilda Stamper's blackness is literally erased. Once again, like I said, I'm not a novelist. I simply use the archival records that we have. So the words say enslave or slave or negress, but the pictures paint a totally different story. So I'm going to end there. I know um, you'll have questions and comments, and I'll be happy to answer them for you. Thank you so much for your time. Before I begin, I'm supposed to talk about Sims, but I really can't help myself, and my mind goes in different places. So it's cherry season, right? I've been waiting so long for cherry season. I love cherries. And you know, I've been buying them up, and they're like super expensive. And I don't know why, at the same time, I come across an article that talks about George Washington's biographer and how the story of him chopping down the cherry tree was just totally made up by the biographer because he wanted to make him appear to be more uh, down to earth. And, and that's just to say that um, not only is beauty in the eyes of the beholder, but so is history, okay? And for me, Roosevelt, I supported the removal of every single one of those pieces of work that you saw there. Christopher Columbus, Roosevelt, all of them. And I just have to say, as a Puerto Rican, Theodore Roosevelt, was a tyrant, a terrorist, who brutalized and killed people in the Caribbean, Puerto Rico. And the 200 million acres that was mentioned that he bestowed, those, that, that was stolen land, folks. Okay, we are standing on stolen land, so we have to start from there if you want to talk about history, okay? So, uh, oh yeah, and he was also a eugenist, but you know, he's a decent guy, he made a lot of contributions, right? Going back to Sims, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not, you know, um, historian, but I do recall reading that he also claimed to have invented a cure for lockjaw, and that meant that he pried apart baby, uh, black slave babies' jaws, right, with a wrench or whatever it was used, and he called that a cure, which of course it wasn't. 
And other writers have described him as being very good friends with P.T. Barnum and sort of had that self-promotional style about him. So a lot of his claims have been disputed. And um, I think there's another book coming out that will talk about that by J.C. Hallman, who wrote the piece in Harper's Magazine. That's all to say, we really don't know who these people are, right? All I can say is, when in my community, I was like, who is this guy and why is he here? So it all started with the publication of Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington in 2006. And she didn't solely focus on Sims, but she did give him a lot of attention and talked about some of the same things that was mentioned before. And he was a slaveholder, not just leasing and you know, experimenting on other people's slaves, but he himself was a slaveholder. And so again, a lot of what he has been credited with or what he himself gave himself credit for has been disputed um, and continues to be. So when Harriet Washington's book came out, Viola Plummer, who is at the bottom uh, on the right, took it upon herself, she's a Harlem activist, uh, to do a petition all over Harlem calling for the removal of the Marion Sims statue, which is was on 103rd and 5th Avenue. It had been there since the 30s when it was moved from Bryant Park because Bryant Park didn't want it because it didn't fit in the theme, with the theme of the park when it was being renovated in the 30s. So it was dumped in East Harlem across the street from the New York Academy of Medicine because I guess that made sense at the time. And so the years of work that, that you mentioned, and this is not just me, this is like, this has been led by women of color. Okay, so we, you know, Harriet Washington and Maureen Connor there, um, we've done panel discussions, there have been exhibitions. Uh, the youth that you see there are from Harlem, uh, Laundromat Project's Harlem cohort in 2016. They decided to focus on the Sims statue. They did panel discussions. They also did a, an action in front of the statue. And um, this is uh, Professor Lynn Roberts on the bottom right. She chose to pose in front of the statue when she was asked for a student to take a portrait of her. And, and there I am. Oh, and uh, the guy in the middle, you know, that that is the antiquities director for the New York Parks Department. And he was arguing that, you know, we were be, we were censoring, we were at, we were denying and, and erasing history, you know, and, and so uh, he was also there the day they took the statue away and he, you know, didn't seem too shook up. But anyway. <laughs> So, so yeah, the Harlem cohort of the Laundromat Project did an action, Not Our Statue, and they invited me to speak. Viola Plummer was there, and other spoken word artists. And this was something that was led by young black women, uh, Latina, and this is something that they, you know, just came to them. It wasn't something that was dictated to them. And so the work of us in East Harlem eventually included support from the community board. So they were actually on board before the commission decided just to correct. And in 2011, they asked the Parks Department to remove it. Our former councilwoman, uh, Melissa Mark Viverito, who was also the speaker later in 2011, also wrote to the Parks Commission to have the statue removed. And then Commissioner Adrian Benepe was... Um, 
really not helpful at all and refused to, to, to do so, uh, saying that we were censoring, right? When in fact, again, the precedent had been set by Bryant Park administrators that they didn't want the statue there. So you can't tell us that you won't remove art for content when it's already been done so. And they did so with uh, Civic Virtue, which was moved after protests from Queens to Greenwood Cemetery. So I ha I'm there with Diane Collier, who was uh, chair of the Community Board 11, uh, the bottom right, when we were interviewed by the reporter from the Post Courier. We did a number of programs for Manhattan Neighborhood Network with Lynn Roberts, Harriet Washington, Diane Collier, and also uh, members of Black Youth Project 100. So for, for these almost 10 years, we've been at it. Just, you know, we did an online petition picking up where, from where Viola Plummer um, uh, started. We did an online petition. We did forums, protests, everything you can think of. And we supported every single other person, mostly women of color, who took it upon themselves to, to do the same. So um, this is Black Youth Project last year, um, last August, I believe, they staged in action there, which came right on the heels of the Charlottesville action. And so, again, none of this is new because we've been at this for years, and many other people have been at this for many more years before us in terms of Columbus and Roosevelt statues. But it gained the attention of the media here in New York because it suddenly became a hot issue. What helped us actually was uh, Mayor Benjamin from Columbia, South Carolina, was interviewed and asked about the, the monuments down there that were torn down. And he said, well, you know what? There is this statue of uh, this Sims, Marion Sims in New York City, that really has to go. And when I read that in a national newspaper, I was like, wow, thank you so much. <laughs> and we just ran with it, OK? And we just pushed and pushed and pushed the city. And Black Youth Project came in right on time. And the mayor uh, decided to put together the commission. I I think that it was, you know, all of that pressure that just came together at the right time. And also, you know, he was running for re-election, okay? So <laughs> he put together, he said, I'm going to put together this advisory com commission, but nothing happened until after the general election, of course. And then, so then we had the hearings, and I was really surprised. I watched all of them, but only attended one. And I was just so moved to hear so many people speaking out against the Sims statue and all of the other statues as well. I don't think that there was any one person who testified at those public hearings in favor of the Sims statue. There was actually a woman who was the last speaker in Manhattan who said, you know, you can't change this. You have to leave these statues in place. This is really important. This is history. But that Sims guy, take him down, you know. So... <laughs> Folks in the community, however, couldn't wait, right? So we had several acts of vandalism happening. Uh, somebody threw red paint over his face. Um, and also in the back, spray painted something, I don't know, rapist or murderer. And weeks before the commission finally did decide to move the statue, somebody took it upon themselves to try to saw off the head. So the top photo on the um, top uh, right shows a little bit of, if you look closely, you can see some putty or whatever it is that they, you know, put in there. So I think that also helped 
to, to, for the decision to be to have the statue removed because it was just gonna happen anyway, right? So a uh, funny thing is the day that it was removed, I'm told that after it was taken away from East Harlem that the head fell off, I don't know. I wish I would have been able to see that, but so again, before all of it did you know, eventually leave, there were artists that came to paint in front of the statue. Dimitri, I, for, I can't pronounce his last name. He, you know, he made it a point to spend like uh, several days sleeping in front of the statue and creating you know, possible images, um, uh, you know, possible people that could be honored, including Harriet Tubman. Calvin Ramsey was a playwright who staged a reading about Sims at the National Black Theater, which was incredibly moving. Um, there's an artist that did an exhibition and performance in Brooklyn, I don't recall her name. And so this is something that was moving people all over the city and in other parts of the country. And so we had the hearings and as I said, every single person that I heard testify about the Sims statue called for the removal. And uh, the final uh, vote was by the Design Commission, I believe, in, in City Hall, and it was unanimous. There was only one person that, she's a historian, who spoke for like 20 minutes about her credentials, all to say that she, we shouldn't take the statue you know, down. But um, it was unanimous and, and we were successful and it was taken away. And it was a very moving, moving day to see everyone who had had, you know, been with us for almost 10 years, you know, seeing this happening. Unfortunately, the pedestal remained. And um, the language here at the bottom, you can see, is a plaque that was added to the pedestal. So his name and, and his bio either side still remains. But this plaque was put at the bottom of the statue. And by the way, this was a plaque that the park department wanted to put all along. Instead of removing the statue, they told the Community Board 11 that we will put a plaque to provide context. And so this same language is pretty much what they wanted to put at the bottom of the statue underneath his feet, which women, you know, we strenuously objected to, but for some reason it still happened. We don't know exactly what's going on with the pedestal, but we're not happy. Uh, so it continues. I did a Jane's walk on the Sim statue, right? You just walked around the statue and asked people what they knew about it. Um, and every single person that passed by or that stopped for the uh, talk, of course, what is he doing here? This is, and why was I personally motivated? I gotta say, again, I'm Puerto Rican. And so in addition to the barbarities that have been imposed on black people here, Puerto Rican women were also sterilized without their uh, knowledge or consent in Puerto Rico. The birth control pill was first tested on Puerto Rican women in Boston. So. And, you know, Henrietta Lacks. This is not anything that was like yesterday. This continues till this day. And East Harlem today is a black and brown community, and we do not need to be reminded of those barbarities because we bear that intergenerational trauma every day. So the argument about, oh, you're um, erasing history, absolutely not. If it wasn't for us, y'all wouldn't even know anything about this guy. And I don't mean you, I'm just, you know, in general. So we have done a lot to showcase history, not rewrite it, not whitewash it. 
And so, yeah, Harper's again, the guy, I think he's writing a book about it. Just also want to say that, you know, a lot of the achievements that are given to white men like that are, are practices that women of color have done and, and, and not invented, but have engaged in for centuries to assist each other. And so none of this is ever acknowledged or honored or, or made into monuments, and I wish it was, and including people on this continent. You know, that's, that's if you really want to talk about not erasing history, let's go there. Let's go back all the way and let us tell our stories. And that's why we object to the platform because just by having his name there already controls what's going to come. And we want the opportunity to create our own entirely new vision. Personally, I would like to see women of color who've made contributions in the medical field, either um, being pioneers themselves or perhaps the women that were experimented on. But we have made contributions and we should be honored and, and our children should learn about us as they stroll through Central Park. So we have a few here, Helen Rodriguez Trias, who again fought against the sterilization, uh, Rebecca Lee Crumpler, uh, Neural Side, I, I just, there are like dozens and dozens of people, and I feel strongly that it should be a woman, because like Lulu Lolo, performance artist, um, has engaged in a campaign called Where Are the Women, because we all do know that there are very few women, monuments honoring women in New York City, let alone honoring women of color. So I feel really strongly that whatever is there, if we're going to stay to the theme of medicine and contributions, that it be women of color who are honored period. And so this whole thing about modesty or whatever, I mean, these were women on display at the upper left. This is a famous portrait of Sims and his patients and two other um, assuming doctors. Um, so these were like, it was like a circus also, to be honest. You know, you mentioned before that the, the public was invited. And, you know, Harriet Washington had talked about how the perception was that black people don't feel pain the same way that white people do. So that also influenced a lot of um, how he engaged in his uh, work. So this is me and um, East Harlem Preservation. <laughs> um, this, you know, there I am. <laughs> um, so I uh, just want to say invisible, um, you know, when talk about these statues are invisible, we had no idea who this guy was. I lived in East Harlem, born and raised, and until like Viola Plummer and Harriet Washington, you know, just woke us up. It was like, boom, of course this makes sense. Take it away, right? So although they may be invisible, it doesn't mean they're not without influence, right? Except when it comes to the contributions of black and Latino and indigenous people in this country. So this is a step in the right direction. We want to change that. And, you know, to say that, you know, he was a man of his time, so what? You know, there were a lot of other things going on. And again, the erasure of what a lot of his other practices can't be allowed. So I'm just going to be harsh and say something like, you know, Hitler was a vegetarian. Did you know that? He was a vegetarian. That's what they say, right? We don't know. We don't know anything. Thank you. But I'm just saying, we are all human beings. Absolutely. Thank you. We are all human beings. We. But depending on how much power you have, okay, depending on how much power we have, 
makes who tells the story and who tells our history. So we are taking it back in East Harlem, and we thank uh, Mayor Sin uh, um, Benjamin. <laughs> and let me tell you, when this broke, it was international news. The Afri South African newspapers, um, India newspapers reported, South American newspaper reported. This was international news and I am so proud to have been a part of this and so proud of all of the women and men who supported this campaign. And, and now it's up to us to move the Parks Department to give us you know, the opportunity to create an entire new, new vision for that space that does not include his name, hopefully. Thank you. Good evening, hello. Um, well, thank you very much for the invitation to be in this panel, and thank you, of course, to the panelists who are an inspiration to continue this work. I want to share some thoughts on the importance of dismantling oppressive visual narratives that uphold whiteness and capitalism in public spaces. But first, I'd like to acknowledge our occupation of land that belongs to indigenous people. Uh, therefore, my intention is to assume a position of dispossession and respect for the struggle of First Nations to truly achieve the decolonization of their territory. With that, looking to the definition of public space, we learn that it is a social space generally open to people. Sidewalks, public libraries, streets are common spaces where we come together in our communities. Additionally, parks are also considered public spaces where we could find superheroes taking a break from their routine. <laughs> Nonetheless, public spaces are far from being neutral. Historically, they have been socially constructed to influence and reflect visual narratives of power dynamics that encompass colonial, capitalist, imperial, and white supremacist interests, which have excluded, undermined, and have posed a threat to communities of color. Examples of such are the Roosevelt statue in front of the American Museum of Natural History, which promotes that a white patriot over uh, the flanking figures of native and African stereotypes, as well as the Confederate statue of Robert E. Lee on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, uh, which was erected to monumentalize and visually uphold white supremacy during Jim Crow. As a personal note, I'd say that I had to abruptly encounter this history as I moved to Richmond, Virginia to pursue my MFA at Virginia Commonwealth University. The same weekend that I moved to Richmond was the same weekend that the white nationalist rally happened in Charlottesville. We're also talking about, of course, J. Myers Sims, and after his atrocious and inhuman experiments on black enslaved women, or you know, the Confederate statues that were removed from the uh, Hall of Fame in the uh, Bronze Community College. 
With this history in mind, as well as with the plan to respond to the threat of gentrification in the Kingsbridge Road, in the Kingsbridge neighborhood, in the Bronx, I would like to introduce one of the works that I have done in public space. Uh, I set out to create a sh and shape another narrative that reflected the cultural and resilience of my neighborhood by doing art performances right in the public space. My project Bridging Kingsbridge is an interdisciplinary project um, consisting of performative actions, video projections in public space, and also collectoral histories which reflect the communities living in the Kingsbridge area of the Bronx. This will create a historical timeline to document the cultural, societal, and societal complexities of the community and its changes. Here I am basically on um, the piece that I call the planks where actually for two and a half hours I, I was walking on these two planks as a metaphor of building a bridge, but at the same time, this idea of how do we, as people of color, how we, be, how we as immigrants, uh, how people from working classes, they have to be constantly navigating, they have to, and they have to be um, definitely ch shifting their ground and constructing bridges in order to, to get to their communities in order to find themselves. With that, I also have taken uh, extended walks, dragging bars of soap or Hispano Cuava soap. The soap is an important part of my artistic practice as it's a language that I incorporate um, of interactions of domestic life growing up in the Dominican Republic. This type of soap is a staple in uh, the households of, of Dominican households and in the diaspora, and is widely recognized in other countries under, under different brands. Then basically the soaps act as markers for the diverse communities of the Bronx while symbolically cleansing the areas affected by displacement and gentrification. Then I was approached by the laundromat project, the East Harlem cohort in 2016, uh, where we actually collaborated with the East Harlem Preservation and Marine Artists here um, to speak out in front of the J. Mario Sim statue. This was my performance, which consisted of me wrapping my head in a red ribbon while grating white shock and walking with bare feet tinted in red paint around the statue. So basically what I would say is that, um, you know, these actions symbolically represented the inhuman conditions that Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy um, had to go through, as well as, you know, the uh, uh, half a dozen of women that had to go through uh, Sim's hands. Uh, basically, uh, but more importantly, I guess it also represented the healing, the uplifting, the resiliency of our sisterhood and our community as a whole by actually having other, other women in sisterhood um, unveiling me from this, from this pain, uh, from this symbolic campaign that I was trying to uh, represent through my performance. As a community-oriented artist, I did other projects, and one of them is called Sister in Procession, which was done in collaboration with People Power Movement, an uh, organization dedicated to educating, agitating, and organizing for popular control. We walk in procession for three and a half hours, covered in 75 blocks of Jerome Avenue, which has been slaved by the city to be rezoned. We had poets, speakers, residents, and we basically were showing a resistance while walking in procession for this particular cause. Basically, this particular procession was an artistic action, artistic intervention that lasted for three and a half hours where we walked 75 blocks around Jerome Avenue. 
and he brought together, the idea was to actually bring, uh, bring in together working class women of color uh, to come out um, and um, you know, show their concerns and, and, and at the same time take space because I think that's something that we haven't, we, we, we need to be told that we can, we have a, a space to claim here uh, and our presence is, is needed um, for us to push, uh, you know, to push government, to, to push officials, um, to push and, and challenge the, the oppressive narratives that we have been submitted to. With that said, and I think as a matter of shout out, as an artist and as a person that is in constant conversation with other fellow artists, I just want to also give acknowledgement to people that are engaging in this in this conversation about around monuments and how they're doing how they're doing it creatively and artistically. So as a classmate of mine, Sandy Williams, who is who is a UVA alumni with a monument, a Thomas Jefferson monument that sits right at U in UVA, founder father and also a slaveholder. Karen Olivier, Aspiras Monument Lab, an actual project of covering up in an actual uh, monument uh, in Germantown. Uh, Recreating, I guess, recreating the shape of the monument, but at the same time giving space and the reflection to the local residents to see themselves in, in their particular uh, public histories. Of course, decolonize this place, the actions um, that happen, especially on Columbus, on, on, on in their anti-Columbus Day tours at the American Mu uh, Museum of National History and the mo uh, Monument Removal Brigade. Uh, uh, in their action at the Roosevelt statue. Black Youth Project 100, which we have discussed, very powerful performance in, in front of uh, the same statue. Doreen Gardner also engaging in the conversation with the same statue uh, with a performance, an amazing performance where there was a, a sculpture, somewhat of a sculpture made in the shape of the uh, same statue and black women operated on this actual, on this actual statue. And also shout out to uh, Cynthia Tobar and um, team from Bronx Community College who are who created a uh, an archive and an online exhibition of the Hall of Fame in BCC, reshaping and creating new narratives, bringing together the conversation to the contents of the university. Since we are here at the CUNY Graduate Center, we need to dismantle the oppressive narratives that white supremacy brings about while dismantling the racist capitalists that support it. We can start by questioning, dismantling, and discarding the system of knowledge production and the knowledge that promotes racial capitalism, which in many cases are uh, founded here in universities. By making alliances with communities of color that are the real victims of poverty, of police brutality, of incarceration, of housing inequality, of job inequality. We should not be limited to organized protests and artistic actions, I should say. It has to be an everyday exercise of the struggle and resistance to rectify history and to write our own narratives. Thank you. <laughs>